The scripture reading is the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. It can be found on page 896 in the Black Bibles. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Don and Colleen, and good morning to you. Uh, welcome again to Christ the King. My name is Clay Holland. I am the associate pastor here. Um, I think my I think I'm the, my title is the family pastor. I'm taking a little family pastor prerogative in the sermon this morning. So uh, we'll see if you want me to be the family pastor after the sermon is over. That's okay, but. Uh, Glad y'all are here this morning and welcome. Um, John, we, we've been, a, if, you're, if you're here this morning and you're new um, or you came to hear our preschool students sing this morning, we're in the middle of a sermon series and really come close to the end of a sermon series on the Gospel of John. And um, we're meandering around a little bit, but we're back in John 10 right now. And, and John gives us a historical marker in verse 22 that tells us we have come to a new scene. The curtain has closed, the scenery has changed, the curtain has opened again. John says it is the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. Uh, the, now, the last time we heard uh, about Jesus in verse 21, he was also in Jerusalem, but he was there in the fall. Now he's in Jerusalem in the winter for the Feast of Dedication, which is a commemoration of the rededication of the temple, uh, a feast in Jewish uh, holidays otherwise known as Hanukkah. So Jesus was in Jerusalem for Hanukkah, and again, he is sought out by the religious elites, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and they are questioning him. And they said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And it makes me wonder how many of you came into these doors this morning asking the same question. Jesus, if you're real, will you just tell me plainly? We just reveal yourself. We just make it known. Or maybe some of you who've been walking with him for a while in your life are, are doubting these things even right now. Well, Jesus is very gracious. He engages with these leaders in John 10, and he'll engage with us in his word this morning. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Jesus, you have called us into your presence this morning for worship, and we do ask you that you would open our eyes and open our ears, that we would see you and we would hear from your word, uh, that we would hear your voice and follow you. We ask it in your name. Amen. Really one of the most amazing stories I had heard in a while, I was uh, reading an article or listening to an interview, I can't remember where I heard this, but it took place uh, on January the 12th in 2007, it was 7.51 a.m., so it was rush hour, 
in the metro in Washington, D.C. And during rush hour in any subway station or tube or metro in the world, somebody's going to go and find a good spot and open up an instrument case and pull out an instrument and play or sing, uh, try to make a little bit of money. And that's what happened in the L'Enfant metro station in Washington, D.C. on that morning. Uh, a man wearing a hoodie and a baseball cap walked into a spot, opened his violin case, uh, pulled the violin out, threw some money in there to kind of, you know, get the seed, you know, seed things up, get things rolling. And he started playing the violin. Happens all the time. It wasn't what was happening that was impressive. It was how it was happening that was impressive. Because this violinist began playing Johann Sebastian Bach's masterpiece Chaconne, which is a 14-minute violin virtuoso piece that Johannes Brahms once said would have driven him mad with, he, with excitement if he were ever to even be able to imagine such a musical work. And for 53 minutes, this violinist played some of the most amazing and some of the most beautiful music that had been heard in that place ever. But here's the thing. And this is all captured on camera, you know, in the metro station. Out of what was tabulated to be well over a thousand people who walked past this person playing the violin, over 53 minutes, only nine people stopped and listened for longer than 20 seconds. And after this performance, the violinist ended up with $35 in his violin case, 20 of which he had put in there to kind of seed things. So he made a profit of $15. The question is, who was playing the violin in the metro station in Washington, D.C. on some random morning? It was Joshua Bell, former child prodigy who's now one of the most sought-after virtuoso violin performers in the world. If you were going to go see Joshua Bell tonight at Jones Hall, $35 would barely get you in the parking garage. It would not even get you into the show. But here he was in the metro station announcing his presence the best way that he knew how to do it, which was by playing a 1713 Stradivarius violin like a madman, beautifully, wonderfully, announcing to the world who he was and what he'd been put on this earth to do. And people didn't recognize him, and they walked right past. At the beginning of our passage this morning, the religious leaders in Jerusalem approached Jesus, and they, they actually tried to trap him. Hey, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, if you read through the Gospels, John or any of the other Gospels, one of the things that you'll notice is that Jesus never allows anyone to set the agenda. Jesus is always setting the own agenda. He's like, I'm not playing your game. You know, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. No, I'm not going to play your game. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say this. I told you, yet you did not believe. The works I do in the Father's name bear witness about me. That's the key. The works I do in the Father's name bear witness about me. He's telling the people that are supposed to know the Bible better than anybody else that if they really knew their Bible and they compared it to what Jesus was doing, they would know who he was. But you see, just like Joshua Bell was supposed to look and act different, he wasn't supposed to be there he wasn't supposed to be wearing a hoodie and a baseball cap. He was supposed to be at Carnegie Hall. He was supposed to be wearing a, a, a tux, you know. He wasn't supposed to be there. Just like he was supposed to look and act different. That's what the religious leaders thought about Jesus. You're supposed to look, you're supposed to be bigger. You're supposed to be more majestic. You're supposed to be more of a warrior. You're supposed to be stronger. 
But therein lies the question, I think. Why is it that some people see Jesus for who he is and come to him and other people do not? What's the difference there? Well, Jesus is clear that it's, the difference is what happens externally, not as what is internal to us. As one writer put it, to recognize in the man Jesus and all his weakness, all his humility, all his vulnerability, the very presence of the glory of God that can only be the result of a total conversion which none but God can bring about. A total conversion which none but God can bring about. That's the lesson that Jesus is teaching these leaders in Jerusalem. And so how does that conversion come about? We're going to look at just two points this morning on what could be a 12-point sermon. And if, if we get enough votes, I'll just keep going. But no, we're just going to do two points. Those two points are that this conversion comes out about by being known by Jesus and being called by Jesus. Being known by Jesus and being called by Jesus. The signs that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah who has come to rescue his people from his sins, they're all over the place. Some people had eyes to see them, others did not. In the passage, the religious leaders do not see the clear evidence of the transformative power of Jesus, even though they know everything he's done. They know that he turned water into wine, the best wine, to serve a crowded wedding reception. They know that he had taken a tiny little bit of bread and a tiny little bit of fish and he had transformed it into enough food to serve 5,000 men and the women and the children present. They knew that he had healed a paralyzed man. They were kind of upset about that because he did it on the Sabbath. They knew that he had healed a blind man, also a little bit upset about that because he had done particular work on the Sabbath. They knew all of these things. And the Old Testament, which they had basically memorized, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, this is amazing to me, but think about it. What we now know as the Old Testament, they had basically that whole thing memorized. All of it says, whoever comes and does these things, that's the Messiah. Yet they're saying, hey, tell us if you're really the Christ. Tell us plainly. He's like, I'm telling you all the time. I'm showing you with all of my mighty works. They didn't see. Why? Because Jesus says in verse 26, that they are not his sheep. And in verse 27, that he knows his sheep and his sheep follow him. So what does this mean? A couple of things. It means that Jesus knows who are his and that Jesus loves who are his. He knows who are his. It's impossible to escape these very sensitive words that Jesus says in this passage. That the reason that some people run to Jesus and fall at his feet and others do not is because there are some who are part of his flock and some who are not. You see it in verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. He doesn't say you are not part of my flock because you do not believe. That's also true. But he says you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. But this isn't some random numbers game because he not only knows who are his, Jesus loves who are his. In the Bible, the words to know, when Jesus says, I know who is in my flock, he doesn't just mean I have a cognitive, I, I have cognitive recognition of who belongs to me. To know in the Bible is, is to say I have an intimate relationship. Jesus would say that he has an intimate relationship before the foundation of the world. To know means much more than mere cognition. So when Jesus says, I know who are mine, he also means I love who are mine. 
And the love of Jesus is always predicated on action. The Apostle Paul says God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's loved you from all eternity. That's how you are known by Jesus. When our children were babies, I had the sense that God had gifted my wife, Shannon, with some supernatural kind of gifts because you could put our three children in a room with a hundred other children, all of whom were crying. This sounds awful. This would really truly be a horrible experience. But you could put them in there, everybody's crying, and you could put a blindfold on her and she would go find our kids and she would know them you know, from their cries. I also believe that God has given her the gift of interpretation because I would come home from work and our kids would be crying or screaming or doing something and I would be, uh, I am the family pastor, but I'm gonna tell you a secret. I would, it was just kind of like one of those where you kind of want to go, you know, you ever have those days? I would have those days, but they'd be crying and I'd be like, I didn't, I just got here, I don't know what's going on. And she would be like, um, he's hungry, you know, she needs a diaper change, he's just throwing a fit. And she, and she would never look up, you know, it was like amazing. I think actually she's the children's ministry director and Katie Whitehead could do this in the preschool too. They could be sitting, you know, on the preschool hall and they could do that with your kids too. Why? Why? Because they love them, right? They love them. They invest time in them. They love them so much that they know who belong to them. That's, that's why. You know, just a, a few minutes ago, the students from the preschool of Christ the King, they came up to this spot and they, and they sang for us. Do you know why they did that? I'll tell you why they did that. Because they're so darn cute. No, they are cute. They are cute, but that is not why they did that. That is not why they did that. They did that to minister to you. They did that to minister to you because God very often chooses children to teach lessons to adults. Between services, somebody told me they had heard that story about Joshua Bell in the subway station and it was captured on, uh, on, the, on, the, on the cameras that very often the children would want to stop and listen. The children who got off the subway would want to stop and listen, but their parents would just grab them by the head and go, oh, we're late, come on, let's go. You know, they were the ones that had ears to hear. And the adults did not have ears to hear because we were in so much of a hurry. But listen to the words again of this song that these children just sang for us and compare it to what Jesus says about himself in John 10. The Lord loves his children more than we know. Listen to this part. All that he does, he does to show. That he'll never forsake us, he'll never let go. The Lord loves his children more than we know. Oh, 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 oh. You know, that's, that's how the song goes. Hey, listen, that's John 10, isn't it? Isn't that exactly what Jesus just said? Look at my works. Look what I do. And it will show you who I am. I'm the one who knows you, I'm the one who loves you. This first part of this conversion that comes about by the act of Jesus. The second aspect of this conversion is that you're called by Jesus. Let's go back for a second to a question I asked earlier. If you're a Christian, what is it that makes you different from all of the other people in the world that are not Christians? And if you say to yourself, well, it's because I'm smarter than them, you're wrong. Or if you say to yourself, it's because I'm more you know, spiritually enlightened than them, you're also wrong. The Bible teaches none of these things. 
the Bible teaches none of these things, really the true answer is that because you have been called by him. It's borne out in the passage. These religious leaders, they're probably Pharisees and scribes. You know, they get a bad, Pharisees and scribes, you know, when I say that word Pharisee, what do you think about in your brain? You think about somebody who's just mad all the time, right? Just grumpy, just a grumpy person, just mad. But you know, in truth, they were not that. They were not that at all. These were the most highly respected and really highly respectable people uh, in, in the religious life of Judaism. And these religious leaders, these Pharisees and scribes, were in Jerusalem. That means they were the elite of the elite. And they were respectable people. They worked hard to, 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 to obey the law of God. They, they worked hard to shepherd and to care for um, the, the, the people in a very difficult situation under the occupation of Rome. For the most part, these were very good men. The disciples of Jesus were not like that. We don't know a whole lot about the moral life of the disciples of Jesus before they were called to be his disciples. We know about at least one of them, a man named Matthew, who was a tax collector. A tax collector meant that he was colluding with the Romans against his own people. He was basically a, a, a mafia extortionist, you know, exploiting money from local businesses and individuals to enrich himself. He did terrible things. So what's the difference between Matthew and, and these religious leaders is that Jesus looked at him and said, you, Matthew, come follow me. Or as Jesus puts it in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So what's all this pointing to? What is all of this point? What, what, what's the takeaway from this? Well, I would like you to take one thing away from this in particular this morning. And it is this. That your life in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, that your life in Christ is all about one thing. Grace. All about grace. Grace is is receiving a gift that you did not earn. It's getting something good when, some, when you deserve something bad. It's getting a pardon for a murder that you actually committed because somebody else pays that price for you, which is exactly what Jesus did. And the question that I want us to wrestle with here for the next couple of minutes is this. If you truly embraced the grace that Jesus held out for you, if you just truly grasped it, if you just held on to it, if you owned it, if you lived by it, what would that mean for you? How would you live? How would you live differently? There are a lot of answers to that question, but I want us to consider a couple things here for a minute because this is the truth. In, in the world that we live in today, in a culture that we live in today, grace is exceedingly difficult to come by, isn't it? There's just not a lot of grace out there, right? You make a mistake, and that mistake, you know, it, it, it can be documented and haunt you, you know, uh, for the rest of your life. You could put something on Instagram when you're 14 years old that comes back to bite you in a job interview when you're 26 because somebody took a screenshot of it and just wants to. We live in a world right now that's just like no grace. It's all law. And if you're in school right now, if you're a high school student or, you know, you're in middle school and, you know, you kind of understand this intuitively. No matter what people say to you, you kind of understand the, the, the pressure that you're under, you know. Tenth grade, you make a B minus in calculus and pre-cal, you know. Oh, well. I mean, stinks to be you, I guess, because there's, you know, there's no grace in these things. 
question I want us to ask this morning is, how do we live in a world that functions like that? How can we be distinctively Christian in a world that runs without grace? Well, how do we live in a world? How, how, how are we tempted to live in a world that functions without grace? We're tempted to jump right into it, right? We, we're tempted to strive. Don't mess up. Don't mess anything up. We strive. We work. You know, as my, as my daughter says, we, we grind, you know. We lose sleep. We don't have time for our friends who are need. We don't have time for, frankly, anything because we're just constantly striving and working. And if you're in high school, which... There probably aren't a whole lot of you in here that are, but maybe some of you are. That were in the first service. I'm going to say the same thing anyway. If you're in high school, it's a time of year where you're feeling that rather acutely, right? It's a tough time right now, end of March, beginning of April. You're, you're waiting for uh, you know, your decisions on colleges, you're studying for or you're taking um, some standardized tests. Maybe you're just like trying to hang on with the tips of your fingernails to a GPA, you know, to the end of the semester. Let me just, I got one little, one little finger hold right here. I'm just going to keep hanging on to that, you know. And, and that's kind of how you're living. You're under a lot of pressure. And I don't want you to feel guilty about that, students. I don't want you to feel bad about that. Because do you know who else is feeling a lot of pressure and who else is feeling a lot of stress on your behalf? Your parents. Let's, let's be, you know, when I was in high school, if I made a bad grade on a test, which, you know, happened every once in a while um, in my life, I had a full nine weeks to strategize how to break that to my parents. I had a full nine weeks to think of a strategy. If you make a bad grade on a test, do you know how much time you have to think of a strategy for your parents? Zero seconds. Because their phone just dinged. That did not happen to me. I mean, frankly, that's nuts. That did not happen to me, you know? And so we're all freaking out all the time, everybody. And you know that if you make a C on a quiz, you might get a text from mom or dad like three minutes later, like, ah, you know? And, and I want you to know that this passage speaks to that pressure. The Bible, is, the Bible is not like out there somewhere. The Bible's right here where we live. This sense that everything is on the line every second of every day. Everything is on the line at every quiz. Everything is on the line at, at every tryout. Everything is on the line at every test. Everything is on the line at every election. But here's the, here's the truth. The truth is that, that those things that we are doing those things for, that we are holding out for the future, that we are striving for, those things don't love you. Those things don't love you. I, I'm going to tell you a secret. Even in the midst of a, uh, a very fortunate Elite Eight appearance of a particular university, but the University of Texas does not love you. I'm going to tell you another secret, and this one may make some people mad. Texas A&M also doesn't love you. They don't love you. They're willing to sacrifice you. Did you know that? There are, there are a thousand other people, you know, who are happily take your place, you know, if, 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 if something gets messed up and something goes wrong. They don't love you. It doesn't matter what they say. It's what they do that matters. Jesus is saying the same thing here in John chapter 10. Jesus is saying, look at what I do. 
Look at what I do. And what does he do? Well, verse 30, when he says, I and my Father are one, that's huge. Jesus is making a a, a distinct claim of divinity. He's saying, I am God. The religious leaders in Jerusalem, they understood that. He said, I and the Father are one. The first thing they do is they pick up rocks and they're ready to stone him. But Jesus is saying something really important here. What does God do? God comes down to you. He comes down to you. No other world religion has a God that comes down to love you. Greek gods come down, but they come down to mess with you. Other world religions are mainly about you ascending to God, doing enough things for, you know, to, to, to appease God, to earn his love and to his care. God comes down to you to dwell with you. And he comes to redeem you from your sins. When Jesus is encouraging us throughout this passage to look at what he does, to look at his works, he's reminding you that all of those things point to a time in the future when he will come again where all of those works that he has done that has foreshadowed this will be true forever and for everybody who dwells with him. When he comes again and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, nobody's ever going to be ashamed because they ran out of wine and got embarrassed in front of their neighbors. In the new heavens and the earth, nobody's going to be blind. In the new heavens and the earth, nobody's going to be lacking food. In the new heavens and the new earth, nobody's going to be paralyzed from the waist down and not be able to walk. Jesus is pointing, he's saying, look at what I do and look at what it is pointing to. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. And so, students, and by the way, my kids hang out at this church every now and then. Um, and so you could ask him, hey, did your parents parent you the way that he's talking about right now? No, I didn't. And I'm frankly not happy about it because I'm old enough and I've seen enough of the fruit about, you know, to, to, to kind of enter into this with you. But please don't hear me as saying this from above you in, in any way. But it does make me think and long, frankly, for those of you who are students Um, that you're able to grasp this, that it allows you the freedom to rest in Christ and it allows you to reserve energy in your life for other things, Um, for the life of this church. We need you. This body needs your participation in it from the youngest to the oldest for friendships, for other things. And, And parents, you and me, right? Us, us. Here's the question that I want us to grapple with. Are we teaching our children to give all of their best energies to things that don't love them and would be willing to sacrifice them? That's a hard question. They'd be willing to sacrifice them and cast them off if they ever made a mistake. Those are bad gods. Those are really bad gods. There's a word for that, abuse. Those are bad and abusive gods. I mean, Jesus himself said it, for what good is it to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? That's another question that Jesus asked in Mark 8. And I want to encourage us not to do that. I want to encourage us to point each other to Jesus. I want to encourage you to come to Jesus. I want to encourage you to rest in Jesus. I want to encourage you to find your life in Jesus as the one who knows you and the one who loves you, the one who calls you to himself. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are and for what you have done on our behalf. It is, it is simply un. I cannot fathom the fact 
that the God who created the universe came down and engaged in a respectful conversation with people who wanted to kill you. And you did that because you were so gracious and merciful and kind. And you offer that grace and mercy and kindness to us as well. Pray that we would grasp hold of it and live by it. In your name, amen.